Amen. That is a fun song uh, taken from an old Chinese hymn. Uh, true story. And it's fun to sing it across the ocean to the same God we all worship. I want to begin this morning with a story, a once upon a time kind of story. It's a true story. And it's in the background of the psalm we're going to be looking at this morning. If this psalm were made into a movie, I think this would be sort of that, that opening scene that a lot of movies have these days, right? You, you fade into the middle of some wild context, and then there's a little story that unfolds, and it fades to black, and then the title credits come up, and the music begins to play. This story takes place about 35 years before David would be anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. And it's a great battle that will unfold just outside the city of Aphek. I've got a map up here I can show you in a sec. Hopefully. There's my map. Yep. And so down here is Jerusalem, but it's not called Jerusalem yet. It's still called Jebus in the region of Judah. Up in the north, Ephraim is the dominant tribe of Israel, and God's presence is in the tabernacle here in Shiloh. But over here is the northern fortress city of Aphek, where the Philistines are trying to hang on to their influence and be able to stage ongoing invasions into the land of Israel. And so the Israelites gather to go war against the Philistines just outside there at a place called Ebenezer. And there they suffer a defeat. 4,000 dead Israelite soldiers. Shocked by the loss, the armies of Israel led by the Ephraimites, they try to figure out what are we going to do? And they end up concluding, we need a little extra Yahweh power to defeat our enemies. And so bring the magic box. And so they send for the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and had it brought to the front lines carried by the priest Eli's two corrupt sons. They didn't pray to God. They didn't consult the priest Eli. They just brought their lucky charm into the camp and gave a roaring war cry when it arrived. Fascinating part of the story is that the Philistines, when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant had arrived, were more fearful of God than the Israelites were. And they began to recount to themselves the stories of God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt and the power that he had displayed in defeating that nation. And so they had to psych themselves up. In 1 Samuel 4 9, they said, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so fearfully, they went to meet the Israelites in battle. And guess what happened? Turns out God does not like being a lucky charm. And so the battle becomes a disaster. And when it became clear that their magic box wasn't working, the men of Israel to a man were filled with fear and fled away. And in the following chase by the Philistines, 30,000 Israel foot soldiers were slain. What's more, both of Eli's foolish sons were killed in the battle as the conflict overwhelmed the Israelite camp. And worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant itself was taken into Philistine captivity and carried off. A messenger from the battle ran back to the city of Shiloh and delivered the awful news to Eli and to the person who was with Eli, his daughter-in-law, the wife of one of his sons, very pregnant at the time. They were both shocked at the news of the death of Eli's sons, but interestingly enough, that didn't seem to overly affect them. But when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been lost, Eli, shocked and that, with that news, fell over backwards in horror and broke his neck and died. And his daughter-in-law went immediately into labor, 
a childbirth she would not survive. In fact, her last minutes are recorded this way in 2 Samuel 4.20. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or even pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, which means no glory, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Israel's foolishness, led by the warlike and impetuous Ephraimites, had seemingly broken their connection with Yahweh. And on that, di- on that day, it seemed like the breach might be forever. And that's where you would fade to black. Fast forward 50 or so years. David has been anointed as king over the course of the next decade. His drama with Saul has played out. He's now on the throne. It's a new monarchy. And now we fade back to a choir director raising his arms to begin the first performance of Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. You can turn there in your Bibles. This will be our text this morning. For Asaph, this psalm would have been intensely personal. It builds to the story of the ark being lost to the Philistines, and it resolves with the rise of King David and the worship of Yahweh moving from Shiloh down to Jebus, now named Jerusalem. And that would have been a day that Asaph never forgot, not only because the coming of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David was so significant in the history of God's people, but because it was also the day that Asaph received his job as the chief among the Levites to give thanks to God. Together with his sons, Asaph would begin a guild of worshipers so well known and so beloved that temple singers were often just referred to as a group as the Asaphites. Most scholars agree that the term maskil likely refers to a psalm meant to be played skillfully or that required great skill to perform. This wasn't your first year choir piece, in other words. This was a song for pulling out all the stops and making the most of every musical tool in the tool bag. And at 72 verses long, you can imagine, it was quite an undertaking to perform. Yet despite its complexity and length, the message of Psalm 78 is actually very simple. And it's a message that God's people from every age need to be reminded of. And particularly this week as we launch into our fall, our fall ministry cycle here at Valley Bible Church, this is the call of Psalm 78 to all of us. We can never afford to stop telling the next generation the embarrassing and glorious story of our past, that we are a people who regularly choose petty sin, and Yahweh is a God who relentlessly chooses gracious salvation. That's our story. As embarrassing as it might be for us, we cannot afford to stop telling the story of a people who regularly choose petty sin, and a God who relentlessly chooses gracious salvation. That's the heart of the gospel message. It must be the heart of every ministry at Valley Bible Church, shining a light on the grace of God to people like us. And so without further ado, we'll let Asaph take it away. If you are taking notes this morning, the first point in your outline there is this, don't keep the story to ourselves. 
In verses 1 through 8, Asaph calls the people to listen to his words, and he gives us two reasons to do so. The first reason focuses on who God is, and the second focuses on how then we must respond. And so in verses 1 through 4, follow along with me as we see a God worthy of praise. Beginning in verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Asaph says, I'm going to tell you a parable. That word there can mean a proverb or a story that teaches a point. And it's a bit of both here, but mostly a story. And as he says, an old story. Dark sayings is how the New American Standard renders it. Perhaps better translated as a riddle. It means a perplexing statement, a perplexing saying from the past. We're about to be given a story of the past that is a bit perplexing, but incredibly important. And important for whom? Well, notice the focus of this story is not for the world around us to hear in this psalm, but it's a story that we need to hear and we need to tell ourselves. It's a story that must be communicated internally and generationally. Do you see how there are at least three generations in view in verses 1 through 4? There are the fathers, there are their children, and there is the generation to come. There are at least three generations who need to hear the mysterious story of old. The people of God to every generation. Each person should not feel at rest, in other words, until they are confident that their grandchildren's generation, whether literal or figurative, knows this story backwards and forwards. And for us, this is true as well. In all of our ministries throughout our church, do not think that we have accomplished what God has called us to accomplish until we're confident two generations downstream from us, they know. And if you're thinking, there are no generations downstream from me, I'm a kid, then you've got your whole life to work on this enterprise until you have kids two generations down from you. Now is the time to learn the story well so you can tell it well later. BBC, we must not take for granted that our children and grandchildren will know how amazing our God is if we don't talk about him. This is an important story that we tell to every generation, and it's a story, notice, of why we find God to be so worthy of unending praise. It's not a story about our accomplishments. It's not our story, a story about our impressiveness as a people. It's a story that Asaph says is about his strength and his works, wondrous as they are, which he has done. If we want our children and our grandchildren to know how amazing God is, to continually praise him with joy in their hearts, we need to take serious to repeat the stories of who he is and what he's done. And that needs to take place across all our ministries, in all our homes, and to all our generations. And from this will come then the fruit of holiness, as a generation enamored with a praiseworthy God learns to follow a standard worthy of obedience. And that's the next point there in your outline, a standard worthy of obedience. Look with me at verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, 
that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Notice again all the generations in play here. We're up to a fourth one now. Fathers teaching children who teach the generation yet to be born that they may arise and tell their children. The emphasis is on telling the story, not just so that the audience can hear, in other words, but so that the audience is equipped to retell the story well. In our discipleship, the goal is not just for us to expose people to good information, but that lives are transformed and truth internalized so well that the Great Commission is ready to continue in the hands of those who come after us. And what will those transformed lives look like? Well, in summary, a life of obedient faith. And obedient faith here is described as three things. A people who put their confidence first in God. They put their confidence in God and they do not forget what he has done. And because of that, and this is an important order, because they've put their confidence in God, because they haven't forgotten what he's done, they will walk in obedience to his commandments. What will the result be? Well, I think we can all affirm this. The result would be that by the grace of God, those who come after us will be a little bit less like us and a little bit more like Jesus. That's the goal. And warning, we're about to get to the embarrassing part of the story. And it's also the part of the story that reminds us why God is so worthy of praise and why following his commands is such a blessing. Otherwise, the natural inertia of fallen man plays out like we have seen in our own lives too many times. Like the fathers mentioned here in Psalm 78, we don't want to learn. We don't want to submit. We don't want to deal with what's going on in the heart on the inside. And then we abandon God with how we live on the outside. Like I said, this begins to get embarrassing. And because we are so slow to learn and because our sin is so petty, it's not only embarrassing, but it's also very long. In verses 9 to 64, Asaph retells Israel's history not once but twice in a very unflattering way to shine a spotlight on why God is so great. Hebrew writing loves to cover the same material multiple times from slightly different angles to anchor the lessons and unfold all the richness of an idea. And in these two retellings, we're going to notice some very similar patterns, but we're also going to see some differences in emphasis. And those emphases of what God has done despite who we are are things we want to bring to the surface, not only in our passage this morning, but throughout our church and in all of our ministry. And the first theme is quite simply this, the grace of God in forgiving sin, the grace of God in forgiving sin. When we speak of our history, when we tell the story to the fourth generation, let us speak of grace that forgives. In the following 31 verses, we will see an extended look at a people who deserved only wrath, but a God who made a different choice. And there is no person who has ever been adopted into the family of God who does not have the same story. 
Some experience God's grace after coming out of a life of ignorance in the world. But for others, and I would, have, I would imagine for many even in this room, we like Israel experienced the grace of God even when we had seen who God is and we had known of what God has done and we had trampled that grace underfoot anyway. And so in verses 39 and following, we see the redeemed who trample grace. Verse 9, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. Here's our first reference to Ephraim, the chief of the northern tribes, and their complete defeat in battle. They were a mighty and a warlike people. Whenever you run into Ephraimites in the Old Testament, you're running into some hotheads. But they were put to shame and put to flight before the Philistines. How did they come to be so humbled? Well, Asaph tells us, verse 10, they did not keep the covenant of God and they refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. And this is such a common pattern. It's a common pattern we see too often in our own lives. We begin by disobeying what God has said because we want to. And have you ever noticed if you're working with your children and you finally get down to the reason why they disobeyed and you're like, that was a silly reason. Want to do something really intimidating? Get down to the reasons you obey, disobey, the reasons I disobey. They're often such silly, petty reasons. But we turn away and disobey what God has said and then to protect the silly justifications of our sin, we forget through neglect all the many things we know about what God has done for us. That's what the Ephraimites had fallen into. That's what so many of us fall into. These wonders, verse 12, that he had wrought before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. And Zoan is just a city in the northeast of the Egyptian Nile Delta there. It's used largely as a synonym for the land of Egypt. And I think also because it sounds like Zion, Zoan and Zion, and we'll see Zion later. So I think Asaph's doing a little word play here. But God had performed all these wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And here is the familiar story of Israel being led out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, but by the power of God. When God's people were trapped against the Red Sea as they had fled out of Egypt and the armies of Egypt were chasing them, God miraculously parted those waters and allowed them passage through on dry ground. During the day, he showed them where to go through the wilderness by a cloud that led them. And at night, he guided them and showed his presence to them through a pillar of fire. But God didn't only show them the way, he also provided for their needs. When they thirsted in the wilderness, God literally brought water from rock to quench their thirst. How do you respond to wondrous deeds of deliverance like that? Well, if you're Israel, or if you are you or me, you probably still complain about what you don't have that you want. Look at verse 17. Yet they still continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test 
by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? I mean, can you imagine these guys sitting around in their tents like, well, I mean, yeah, he made water come out of a rock, but like, that's just water. You think he could actually make dinner? Probably not. Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. And I think we're all on God's side on this one, aren't we? We're like, how petty can you be to mock God, to doubt God, to not trust the one who just humbled Egypt and brought you out with miracles, who was being faithful to you day by day through the wilderness. Wow. No wonder God is full of wrath towards his people. But notice, we might be rooting for thunderclouds in the sky, but it isn't lightning that falls from heaven. Look at verse 23. Yet, yet, what does that mean? In contrast to the fact that God was angry towards his rebellious people, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he directed the south wind when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. Then he let them fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwelling. So they ate and were well filled and their desire he gave to them. This is grace. They complained about bread and God gave them bread anyway. Manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? So we don't know how to recreate this bread today because we don't know what it was made of any more than the Hebrews did. But it was from the storehouses of heaven, so it was probably pretty good. And when bread from heaven wasn't enough, even then they complained and he gave them the gift of meat, quail meat. And you might be thinking, there's not a lot of meat on a quail. And you're right. That's why God didn't just send a couple quail, but he sent so many that in Numbers 11, it says you could go out a day's journey in any direction from the camp of Israel and you would find quail a yard deep lying everywhere on the ground. When God gave them this grace, he gave them grace, abundant and I wish I could say that this then finally got through and ended all this foolishness of Israel. But it didn't. Sadly, how many of us this morning, looking back at our own lives, if somebody came to us last week and said, are you a Christian? We'd be like, yes, I'm a Christian. And they said, really, what, what have you seen God actually do for you? How many of us could recount? Well, there was this time when we were really in a bad situation and God brought these amazing circumstances around or this time that we were so downcast and God brought this amazing word of encouragement that just lifted our spirits. There's a time where God's truth has proven so unbelievable in describing our condition, what we need to do, just recounting all these amazing stories of God's faithful to us in past desperate circumstances. But how many of us could do that? But even this last week, 
we found ourselves complaining to God about the future or complaining to others that God wasn't doing something fast enough or the way we wanted about the future. Why is this going to turn out? How is this going to work out? What's going on? I don't know how this will play out in our lives, but here is how it played out in the lives of those who were in the wilderness. Verse 30. Before they had satisfied their desire while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. They don't respond to dinner or a spanking. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him. And returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and that the most high God was their redeemer. And you're thinking, yes, finally. But verse 36, but they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Even their repentance was false. In distress, they cry out to God for a miracle but they still keep their hearts super glued shut. They want to give him their circumstances. They're unwilling to give him themselves. They occasionally say the right words, but they don't believe. They do deceive. They will not stay with God and they won't obey God. And man, that is petty. That is embarrassing. Why is it so important to make sure that our great-grandchildren hear this kind of dirty laundry about our unfaithfulness? And the answer is because it sets up the real point of the story. A God who is nice to pretend perfect people isn't a God who has done anything particularly special. Even the pagan gods are described that way. And the church is in danger if the image it projects to the world is that there is a God who's pretty nice to us because we do all the right stuff, but he's not going to be nice to you because you break the rules. And how often have we run into that misconception in the world? How often have we wondered about that misconception ourselves? If we are the kind of people we actually are, then it becomes truly a miracle that God is the kind of God he actually is. And so in verses 38 and 39, we see the God who restrains his wrath. 38, in response to this deceptive, even repentance on the part of Israel, it says, but he being compassionate forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus, he remembered that they were but flesh a wind that passes and does not return. Amazing, isn't it? That's what our God actually did. He actually forgave them. He pulled his punches repeatedly. He had compassion on the frailty of his creatures. Even as they defied him in the most impudent, incessant, and frankly, infuriating ways possible. We have a God who forgives, who forgives real sinners, petty sinners, sinners with no redeeming qualities, sinners who don't get it even after they have witnessed the grace of God over and over in their lives. Sinners, in other words, 
like us. This is our story. This is our song. Praising our Savior until our great-grandkids get it. But God's grace is not only seen in how he withholds the wrath we deserve, but it's also seen in how he provides salvation from that sin. And that's the theme of the second telling of Israel's history that begins next here in verse 40. We need to speak of a grace that forgives. And we will also, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren, speak of grace that delivers. Look with me at verses 40 to 72. If the theme of the first retelling was man's rebellion and God's restraint, then the theme here is man's forgetfulness and God's choosing. I know we want to skip ahead to the amazing God part, but once again, that wouldn't be the whole story. And so we have to wade through the embarrassing part first. The forgetful who turn astray in verses 40 to 64. The forgetful who turn astray. Look at verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. We begin the second retelling with a reminder that we have a God who has chosen to be in a relationship with his people. That he is personally invested and even emotionally responsive to our sin. God isn't just watching the sin of the Israelites watching them with some kind of stoic indifference, like a math equation unfolding before him. No, what is going on in the wilderness is a breach of love that it says grieves and pains him. He cares about his relationship with his people. And in verse 42, we read this, they did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers to blood, and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper, and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones, and their sycamore trees with frost. I hadn't noticed that before. Hailstones, I imagine, actually indicate cold weather now, don't they? I'm guessing trees dying of frost wasn't something that happened a lot in Egypt. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury, and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. What a mental picture of God clearing a path for his wrath. It's like a massive bulldozer of judgment scraping right through the heart of Egypt, making a path to the wilderness for his people to escape. Asaph wants us once more to remember what God did in Egypt. Throughout the Old Testament, this event is the touchstone It's the picture of a God who redeems. It's what God's people are called back to constantly to remember. Do you remember that time you were redeemed? Do you remember what God did there? For us, it's not Egypt anymore, is it? But there is a point in history we look back to incessantly. Remember what God did here. In this case... He highlights seven out of the ten plagues with which Egypt was afflicted. 
When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he did so by a crushing display of his power in plagues designed to humiliate the gods of Egypt. The true and living God proved his power to save and that nothing in the world's most powerful nation or all of its false religion could stop him. And yet somehow those who were there and saw these things happen, right? Not just people who heard about it later, those who were there and saw these things happen managed to forget God's power as soon as the landscape of Egypt had disappeared over the horizon behind them. We know the story. God's faithfulness remained despite their unbelieving hearts. And God made good on his promise of a land for his people. Look at verse 52. But he led forth his own people like sheep. And guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear. But the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land. To this hill country which his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them. And apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement. And made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. In the second retelling, Asaph skips quickly past all the wanderings in the wilderness and brings it all the way to the point where God's people have been brought into the promised land of Canaan and have settled it and have had their tribal allotments apportioned to them. This is a God whose grace extends beyond mere forgiveness and includes full salvation. This whiny, treacherous people have made it into the promised land and been settled in nice and cozy. What an amazing God. And that means we know what comes next, right? Verse 56. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. Ever seen a bow that won't shoot straight? For they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly, here's a tense word, abhorred Israel. Not only did they forget the God who had saved them, but it reminds me of God through Jeremiah calling to his people saying, you've committed two sins. You have forsaken me, the well of living waters, and you've gone and dug broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. They've turned from God and devoted their worship to false gods, a betrayal of the most childish and inexcusable sort. But is it not the same exact flavor of unfaithfulness that we find ourselves wrapped in so often as well? How many of us, even this last week, have shown more love and devotion to something in God's world instead of God himself? have found ourselves more concerned with, more afraid of, more committed to something other than the God who saves? How many of us have looked for solutions to our problems in people, places, pills, programs, policies, and human power and are only, as we sitting here this morning, realizing I completely forgot to consult my Savior and ask for his help this week? In the case of Israel... God's grace came even in the form of his judgment. And we're going to see even in God's discipline, as he removes his special presence from Shiloh, 
He's not removing it entirely from his people. And so we finally hear about that story we began with this morning. Look at verse 60. God abhors Israel in their adulterous abandonment of him so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. That's the story of the Ark of the Covenant being lost to the Philistines. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword and his widows could not weep. The glory has departed and it seems as though it's all over for this experiment of God and man living together. The ark is gone. The young men, 34,000 of them, if you include both battles together, lie dead. So many young women at home who had dreamed of marrying those young warriors will now never get to have their wedding day. The priests of God lie slain by the sword among the wreckage of battle. And the widows, even the one we read about, in the death throes of childbirth gone wrong, can only call out Ichabod with dry eyes. It's the end of the story, as we all feel in our gut it should be. A God more gracious than we deserve and a people yet more wicked than makes any reasonable sense coming to a sad and tragic ending that is inevitable. And this is a perfect place to use one of my favorite Tolkien words again. Eucatastrophe. A word he made up to describe the part of a story when grace and salvation explode into view just when everything seems deservedly and unchangeably lost. Enter the hero yet again. And oh boy, what an entrance. Look with me at the God who chooses to save even forgetful people who abandon him. Look at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Behold, O Christian, your God. The God who chooses whom he chooses and the God who loves whom he loves. I love this great image of a warrior lying in a drunken stupor, suddenly leaping to his feet with full strength and resolve and charging into the enemy. Can God get drunk? No. Can God get moving in a startling hurry sometimes? You betcha. How can God tell, though, among the people before him who the enemies are? How does he distinguish between the unfaithful and the other unfaithful? Because it doesn't depend on us. That's how. Because it depends on his choosing. He saves those he saves because it pleases him to do so. Because he's that kind of God. He humbles Zoan and he loves Zion. 
not because one place or one people is more impressive than the other, but simply because of his choice. For Asaph, the pinnacle of God's redemptive history to date was the establishment of King David on the throne of Israel and the beginning of a reign of a God-fearing ruler over a united kingdom. And that's where this psalm will wrap up its storytelling. But we know that's not where the story wrapped up. And it has more embarrassing parts. David wouldn't sit in his integrity for long, would he? Soon even David would forget the mighty works of God and fall into sin. And from this would flow more pain, more judgment, and more grace. On and on the story went until the real hero finally came. Jesus of Galilee, the man who is God. And he was treated as contemptuously as God ever was. But this time it culminated not just in words directed to heaven, but blood and a cross. And yet even then, at that cross... God was working out his grace for us in ways unspeakably wonderful and unthinkably undeserved. And this is what we sing of. This is what we speak of. This is what we live out in all humility as the people of God. The reality that we are petty sinners and yet God is a great savior. And as the music team comes to close us in song this morning, Valley Bible Church, let this be the message we never tire of. It is so natural to us to speak much of our accomplishments so that people would think much of who we are. But we have lost the right to do that when we accepted the grace of God for us in Christ Jesus. And so now we need to tell the truth. The same truth that Paul told when he wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.